please let's stop with okay for the greater good you're taking on risks for to protect other kids and what about these kids what about these kids rights to live in a world free from the scavenge free from the ravages of pharmaceutical toxins to save some other kid from a mild childhood illness that's where the balance of ethics should be and we need to revisit that as a society Welcome back to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. I am Stephanie Weidel. Before we begin our episode for today, I'd like to encourage you all to like, comment, subscribe to, and share these podcasts with those around you. The mission of our podcast is not only to demonstrate, by example, the government's extreme abuse of power, but also to demonstrate how to stand for your convictions, even when you think you are standing alone. Every week, we are given another opportunity to see another example of one who has put everything on the line to take hold of the rights they are given by God and the Constitution. Their example does not go unnoticed. Please spread the word and donate towards our efforts at fedsforfreedom.org. Welcome to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Today, we again have the great honor of talking with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, who wrote a book on the environmental and genetic causes of autism. He is the CEO of IPAC-EDU, Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge Education, which offers incredible classes and resources on a multitude of subjects, including toxins, which we discuss today. Following our discussion last week about the vaxxed unvaxxed study James and Dr. Paul Thomas conducted, today we discuss the environmental factors that can lead to autism, what toxins are prevalent today, what you can do about it, and we hear his take on COVID and Disease X, of which the World Economic Forum and WHO our warning is coming. Welcome back to the feds. Jack, it's so good to see you. Thank you. It's good to be back. So last week we had talked in detail about the vax unvax research that you did with Dr. Paul Thomas. And we also talked about um, the pharmaceutical industry. We talked about um, uh, chronic issues that you saw within, um, within Dr. Paul's practice. Now we're getting to the research you had done even prior to working with Dr. Paul Thomas in terms of autism. So you have even written a book about autism called Environmental and Genetic Causes of Autism. Tell us about that book. Yeah, sure. So after, you know, writing the chapter that I wrote on vaccines, uh, you know, reporting that there are four major problems, four major controversies. Um. I needed to know, was the CDC lying because they were right? And once in a while, you get a study that, you know, an association with autism might pop up. Uh, I had done a deep dive into the literature, and I found that not all vaccines had been studied for an association with autism. I had um, looked at all of the literature and found that some studies actually did show association with autism, but CDC doesn't talk about those studies. And so this was about 2015. Um, I decided to take four months out of my life and do a deep dive into autism. And I downloaded a thousand studies on autism. I organized what I thought would be a book. 
read all of those thousand studies, completely reorganized what the book design was going to be chapter by chapter. And then I ended up downloading a total of 3,000 studies, 2,000 of which I can honestly, with high integrity, say that I've read. In uh, that book, I discovered in the scientific literature, um, there's absolutely no doubt that vaccines uh, can be associated with autism. There's plenty of evidence for mechanisms of action. We talked about autoimmunity last week and how aluminum hydroxide causes autoimmunity. There is an autoimmune component to autism, autoimmune, autoimmunity in the moms uh, against brain proteins, autoimmunity in the infants and children against brain proteins. But really what struck me most about this, which ultimately led to a study that I published on environmental toxins and their role in autism, was that uh, autism is an acquired cellular detoxification deficiency syndrome. So many of your people uh, in your organization and viewers of this will have heard of the MTHFR uh, gene protein, so methylene tetrafolate. If you have a certain number of mutations or types of mutations, you can't detoxify as well as others against modern toxins. And those associations between those mutations, and there are other genes as well, like COMT. We have an entire course called Genes and Vaccines at IPAC-EDU, taught by Dr. Kendra Becker. Now it's running right now. But all of those genes that have those mutations in them, uh, those variants, some of those variants are very high, like 30 or 40%. So the population genetics experts will say, well, that's, that can't be what's leading to ADHD and autism because it's so highly prevalent. But in fact, and in reality, um, if you have two or three mutations uh, that, that reduce the efficiency of your, uh, your ability to detoxify from any, type, any number of types of toxins, organic pollutants, and so on, you're at higher risk of altering the developmental trajectory of the human brain. And let me ask, how would you know if you did have MTHFR? But you can go to your doctor and say, I want to know, uh, you know what my clinical profile looks like for these detoxification genes. Is that and, a simple blood test? Yeah, a cheek swab should, should do it. Okay. So once you know that, then your job from that day forward is to avoid all kinds of toxins. One of the things that happened was pretty pretty interesting. I, I read these 2,000 studies. I understood better the, the social dynamics, the motor uh, control dynamics. Uh, there's not really an intellectual component. It was wrong for people to say, to consider kids with autism to not be there uh, intellectually. They are there. The Spellers program is showing that. Um, but w one of the things that I found was um, evidence that if you – Take kids, there's a study in Pittsburgh, if you take kids that have autism and they have an ADOS score that's pretty high, and then you put them in a clean room for 24 or 48 hours, their ADOS score improves. If you have, and that's because their bodies are detoxifying. These kids are sponges for toxins of all types all around them. Well, I was at the... Um, I was at a, a fundraiser event for uh, an autism group, which also was my book release party uh, in Pittsburgh. And I was on stage playing guitar and singing with a bunch of kids with, with autism and kids without autism on stage with me uh, with the School of Rock there. This was at the Hard Rock Cafe. And 
um, I, I stepped off the stage. Two things happened that night. I stepped off the stage, uh, and somebody came up to me, and it was a research scientist with his phone. He said, is this, is this figure in your book? And I said, no, she'll tell me about your figure. We, we figured, we sat down. And what he showed was in kids that have autism, there's a variation in the ADOS score among kids with autism. And, and could you explain the ADOS score? Basically, it's a measure of how bad a day your kid is having, right? So it's the severity of like the, the severity of the conditions for autism. But what he, what he looked at was the mean serum concentration of organic pollutants in the same population of kids with autism and the ADOS score. And kids that had a low mean serum organic pollutants had a lower ADOS score than kids that have high. These are plasticizers, gas, uh, components of gasoline, phthalates, organic, organic pollutants. Kids without autism had a much lower ADOS score and no association whatsoever with organic pollutants. So it's not just cause, it's constant irritation of the body with pollutants that bring about autism features, right? So take a look at this. If you could, if you could get rid of all those pollutants in the world, there'd be less autism, right? And so the study that I did, and I know exactly how these, these pollutants and how aluminum and mercury and vaccines are causing it, we have something in our bodies, in all of our cells, called the unfolded protein response. So our cells produce proteins uh, from RNA from the nucleus at, at the site of the ribosome in what's called the endoplasmic reticulum. I'm going back to your 10th grade math. You guys all know this, right? So within the endoplasmic reticulum, it can only hold so many proteins. It's like a sack, right? But if you have poorly folded proteins that don't have the proper biology, the cell doesn't know what to do with them, and the sac starts filling with these poorly folded proteins. And on the surface of each of the cells that we have, there are two proteins that sit next to each other. As that cell swells, if it pops open, it, it instantiates uh, something called the unfolded protein response due to endoplasmic reticulum stress. That unfolded protein response that, that causes the cell to undertake one of three pathways. One, it stops producing the mRNA to produce more proteins. Two, it stops translation of the mRNA to proteins, or it dies. And if it dies, all those strangely folded proteins spill out of the cell into the interstitium. And if there's aluminum molecule attached to that cell or those proteins, that becomes a new antigen because it's strangely folding. It's not a protein. It's not a human protein. It's not folding properly. So there's a genetic risk of, uh, of this unfolded protein response, ER stress risk. There's a genetic risk of ER stress, and there's an environmental risk of ER stress. And I did this study, and I published it, that's entitled Autism is an Acquired Cellular Detoxification Deficiency Syndrome, that showed that a huge, huge percentage of the genes that are associated with autism if the, have mutations in them that induce ER stress. So these kids are just sitting ducks for the toxins more so than other kids. And it's, that's the, it's actually the genetic risk of intolerance of, of industrial toxins. That's what autism is. And that's what a lot of our neurodevelopmental disorders are. So if you have the, a, a gene strain that is more likely to have autism in there, and then you add on it the vaccine toxins, which are like aluminum, mercury, all that stuff, and then you add on environmental toxins, um, then that is the 
perfect breeding ground for an autistic person. Now, um, what are the environmental factors that raise autism rates? And have there been instances of, um, of adult, adults becoming autistic? Great questions. So my book, The Environmental Genetic Causes of Autism, cites all of the literature up to 2015 that showed environmental toxins that are associated with autism. It's a long list. Because environmental toxins, it's not like there's a one-to-one -one magic thing, right? It's like there are many carcinogens. There are many autismogens, okay? So these autismogens include any number of organic pollutants. They include mercury of both types. And a proof of this is the Minamata disaster in Japan. Adults that were exposed to too much mercury because they ate fish from the Bay of Minamata after the Minamata disaster. Well, let's go through the symptoms of autism. You stop making eye contact. You can't speak. Uh, you lose the ability to speak. You, you don't interact with people socially. You act like they're not there in the room. If it's severe, you might hand flap and do repetitive motions. Okay, fine. Anybody can identify a kid with autism that way or an adult. The adults that were exposed to high levels of mercury stopped making eye, eye contact, they started hand flapping, they stopped talking. It's one-to-one -one correspondence. We just call that mercury poisoning over here, but if you poison a kid with mercury to their toxic level of tolerance, it's autism, if it's mercury-based. So there, autism is simply the body's, you know, often, like I said, it often involves an autoimmune reaction as well now. Uh, but it's simply the body's intolerance of toxins and the brain becomes overwhelmed, can't do the things that the brain need to, need to do. Dr. Russell Blaylock's work on chronic microglial activation needs to be completely appreciated here. What happens in the brain if a brain cell dies due to the toxins that are present of any kind, it actually activates, it sends out cytokines that activate microglial cells, which are the scavengers and the immune cells of our brain. And those microglial cells will pick up the cellular debris and clean it up. They also do pruning of the brain during neurodevelopment. And they have to be, they have two roles. They're the, you know, trash collectors of the brain and they prune the brain for neurodevelopment. Well, if you fill the brain with toxins to the point where these microglia are so busy taking out the trash all day long, they can't build the brain properly. So we have altered neurodevelopment due to toxins. So please, let's stop with, okay, for the greater good, you're taking on risks for, to protect other kids. And what about these kids? What about these kids' rights to live in a world free from the, scavenge, free from the ravages of pharmaceutical toxins to save some other kid from a mild childhood illness? That's where the balance of ethics should be, and we need to revisit that as a society. Yes. So, okay. We have an autistic child. First, can we identify what were the environmental toxins that might have contributed that to, to avoid that in the future? It's possible, but it's also difficult. So some of the kids that uh, from the mercury generation that actually I, I know of that where the parents underwent, took them to doctors under the care of many doctors to get chelated for mercury, they didn't just pump out mercury. They pumped out arsenic. They pumped out all this other stuff that their siblings right next to them, if you detoxified or chelated them, it wouldn't come out. So it's hard. It's multifactorial. The, the environmental exposure is by nature of the genetics. Uh, uh, it's really a, a detoxification deficiency syndrome. Absolutely. So by nature of the genetics of that child, they might be more susceptible to some 
uh, than others. And there's one paper that shows that, and I, and I cite that in the book, where particular mutations in one gene seem to be associated with autism risk uh, due to a particular environmental exposure. But there are other risks as well. Some of the risks are like if you live, if you if your family lives near a large agricultural center, there's a higher risk of autism. If you're if you why if you ironically have easier access to medical care and you go to the doctors more often, you have higher risk of autism. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, so okay, why <laughs> if you live near an agricultural center, why would that be a higher risk? So there's there. there's a there's a cloud of toxins around agricultural centers. There's pesticides, herbicides, industrial machines. Okay, there's a cloud of toxins around these modern farming centers. You know, there was one study in New York that actually led to a ban of an environmental toxin based on a county level association. Counties that had a higher coverage in terms of hectares sprayed with chlorpyrifos had much higher autism than counties that didn't have chlorpyrifos sprayed uh, um, for agricultural reasons. So the New York State banned it. Chlorpyrifos is now banned in New York State. That's all it should take. Don't put aluminum in vaccines. Don't put mercury in vaccines. Stop injecting them to everybody thinking you're not doing harm. I have a question. Can you make vaccines without aluminum? Yes. Can they do it? Yes. Then why don't they? They do. They do. Many of the vaccines don't. About 40% of the vaccines that we have are live inactivated or other variants of it. Knowing some of the data, looking at DTaP or looking at MMR and seeing the high rates of reactions for those shots, why don't they then go in and take out the aluminum? If they remodeled their vaccines, they would have to go back to square one with clinical trials and get it through the entire regulatory process again, and they already have the contract and they don't want to give that contract. Merck has been fighting in court not to lose that contract for years. I think it's been 10 or 15 years where they allegedly spiked human samples with rabbit antibodies to fake, to, to submit falsified data for the, to the federal government to show that their vaccine had at least a 95% response rate. Their vaccine, I think, was allegedly 66% response rate. So they, the two scientists who came out as whistleblowers claimed that they were told to purchase commercially available rabbit antibodies and put them into the human samples to falsify the data and mislead the public, mislead the federal government. That case has gone on now and everything's under seal and under, under seal. And unfortunately, I don't know the outcome right now at this point in time, but it doesn't look like it, that we're going to get a ruling of any kind that says that, yes, Mark falsified and Defraud, defrauded the U.S. government. It's it, it it's like there's this Teflon around vaccines when it comes to any kind of responsibility, accountability, uh, and it's not just due to liability free. If you if you're harmed, if, if your child's harmed, you have to sue the U.S. government. You can't sue the vaccine manufacturer. That's just one component of it. So it's like people are walking around in a haze, like Dr. McAuliffe used to say. My colleagues are like zombies. They're walking around in a haze. They're not thinking. If this was chlorpyrifos, it would be banned. But because it's in vaccines, it's taboo to talk about it. Well, given my background, I'm going to talk about it. I just keep wondering, where is the public outrage 
where are the public, uh, you know, eyes opening? I just, it's just incredible to me. Okay, let's go back to toxins. Could you give a chronological timeline of the amount and kind of toxins that have been prevalent in the past 100 years? <laughs> sure. Let me just get out my notebook. <laughs> aluminum for 3.8 billion years was caught in the Earth's crust attached to silicon as bauxite. It wasn't until the mid-1800s when somebody, a German, the German chemist, I guess, we went, figured out a way to extract and purify aluminum from bauxite. And it wasn't until the 1890s when the process was refined to the point where it was made really inexpensive to do, and aluminum literally became dirt cheap. At that point in time, aluminum became something that people found that they could add to food because it stopped food from caking. So you could have powdered powdered goods and you could have baking powder and things like that with aluminum. And, um, of course, we all know about the DDTs uh, with, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the amazing work of the people that took DDTs and PCBs and all of that uh, and, and brought that forward. Um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was a great boon to humanity that actually showed that the earth and the world around us is also sensitive to our environment, uh, to our industrial toxins. And by the way, it's bad for us too. Um, so a lot of people in the 1960s and 70s were concerned about pollution. It was just called pollution, right? And it was funny. I was just watching a Dick Cabot show uh, a couple of nights ago. It's a replay of a Dick Cabot show. And it was the day after Woodstock. Go watch that. It's called The Day After Woodstock. It's a lot of fun. But one of the things that um, Crosby, I think it's Crosby of Crosby Steel, uh, Stills, Nash & Young, um, said was, hey, I wrote a song about pollution, and here it is. Okay, so they're concerned about it. But um, there, there's a social movement that where the you know 1960s the hippies and all the rest, they were anti-corporate, right? That was the foundation of modern liberalism from 1960 till about 1990, I would say. But the toxins that were put out then, I mean, you want me to tell you the toxins that were put out? The U.S., the, sorry, the chemical industry in the in the world discovers 400,000 new compounds a day. So, you know, where do we begin? They don't all make it to market, right? But where do we begin? And so, uh, there was... Uh, Richard Nixon that came up with this generally, his administration came up with generally regarded as safe because the US FDA and its predecessor had realized, hey, there's a lot of things we're putting into food and we don't know what's safe and we don't know what's not. We need a review. Now that we have things like mass spectrometers, we have the ability to, to detect these things in animals that would feed them to it. Is there a buildup? Uh, the, the lead scare uh, that's been ongoing this whole time. The painted lead, people were concerned about that. If you eat, you get developmental delays. You get what was called at the time mental retardation. Um, but uh, so all of that history then changed in 1986 like so much did. I mean, the historians are going to look back and see the sea change. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but other than flat screens, larger TVs, maybe some sleeker looking cars, culturally very little has changed in the United States since 1986. It's almost as though somebody put a pause button on it. Well, obviously, if they've already optimized patterns of consumption and they figured things out, they're not going to change things. Like, you know, 
is like a big seed change. I mean, we have Amazon and we have shipping stuff to our house, but we had that before the Sears catalog, right? And it was an amazing thing that people can open up this Sears catalog and order. And the next thing you know, you've got a bedroom set at your house, right? So that wasn't really new. It was just a reuse of that model. So um, many, 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 many more electronic components in the house, uh, EMFs, right? So those things are new. But the fact that we developed some weird culture where it's not okay to talk about a certain class of toxins that we know cause harm, uh, that's a cultural change that needs to be reversed. So what are the top environmental toxins now in everyday life that we come in contact with? And how, how much of it can we not shed? You know, can we not work through our system? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a good question. So the person I would refer everyone to for that is Dr. Bruce Lanphier, L-A-N-P-H-E-A-R. He's amazing and he's wonderful and you should interview him. He has a website, littlethingsmatter.ca. And, you know, I, I teach a course, Environmental Toxicology, Ecosystem and Human Health at IPAC-EDU. And that course is going to run in the fall um, where we go over 18 lectures. And I tell the students in that, um, in that course, when I grow up, I want to be Bruce Landfair. So he's a great candidate to direct the EPA, right? The, the NIEHS used to actually do studies on things that hurt people, including children. And somehow the chemical industry got a hold of our regulatory agencies and shut down that government-based research. So the EPA is run by the chemical industries now and the corporations that pollute. Um, but Bruce Landfair and his graduate students and postdocs picked five chemicals that they thought, number one, were probably causing the most harm, and importantly, number two, that they thought that they could do something about it. Chlorpophyrus was one of them. So they, one of them is gone. Uh, fluoride is another great concern of, of theirs. I don't have the list in memory, but you know, we hear about these forever chemicals. We hear about you know the, the, the types of chemicals that go into Teflon and so on. Um, I would say if you're not, if we're not, since we're not going to clean up the vaccines, apparently we have to clean up all the rest and they're not liability free. So PCBs are still a problem. You, you can go to the deepest part of the Amazon rainforest and take a person who's never been to a city, never driven a car, and they have PCBs in their blood. So breast milk itself, glyphosate, huge, huge problem with glyphosate. Okay. It absolutely has to be stopped. Uh, quaternary ammonium compounds, these are quats, uh, Q-A-A-T-S. There's a, a woman uh, who I interviewed uh, named Terry Rubick. She was doing this amazing study where she was looking at um, reproductive factors that, that reduce the reproductive output of mice. They, they impair re the reproductive output. She was concerned about sterility uh, and that kind of thing. And she had experiment groups for this chemical or that chemical, and she had control groups. Well, one day she was analyzing data, and she noticed that all of her control groups against the most recent studies had lowered fertility than previous control groups with no explanation. And it was massive. It was like a 50% reduction in fertility. And so she looked at all of her experimental control designs. She looked at all of her reagents to see what went wrong. She couldn't find anything. Well, she was working late one night in the lab and the janitor came in and was spraying the countertop with a spray. 
and she noticed that that was a different color spray than others than than had been used in the past. And they, she said, "What's that spray you're using? Is that new? Oh yes, we changed. When did you change? When did you start using it?" She gave him the date. The change in the fertility associated exactly the time when they started it. All the studies afterward had reduced fertility, and the reduced fertility in these mice was fifty percent and. 50% reduction in fertility of the males, and it lasted for two, two generations. Okay. So these are the same quaternion compounds that we sprayed everywhere to fight COVID. When you walked into the restaurant and the waitress or wait staff was spraying down the table surface, you sat down and it was still wet. Those were quats and or quacks. Um. She went out to California and she gave a presentation out of concern. She was invited and an industry group showed up and they said, we need equal time. And so they said, well, guess what? We see her science. We see this, the results, but they're just animals. So it's probably not important to humans. So California did nothing about it. So they have way too much influence and sway over our policies. Any politician that is pro-vaccine mandate, any politician that is blind and deaf to the risks and perils of environmental toxins needs to be replaced. I don't care what party. I'm not a party politician kind of guy. doesn't matter which party they're in. If they won't listen to you, you need to actively campaign against them. So yes. So how do you heal from this? I mean, besides trying to avoid it, which sometimes you can't, like you said, you go into a restaurant, it's there. Um, <clears throat> the air. I mean, we yeah, we could talk about that all day, but have you found ways to heal from this? What would you suggest? Yep. So uh, pick one and ban it from your life. You can't get rid of all of them, but know that you're getting rid of, like, don't drink out of plastic containers anymore. There are endocrine disrupting chemicals in most of the containers that we use for food preparation and food storage. Switch over to glass. Even your cutting board, you're, when you use your cutting board and it's plastic, you're putting microplastics right into your body. And those are actually able to hold on to other toxins that might be on your food, like pesticides, longer. And so um, just one day, wake up and say, I'm going to take that course at IPAC-EDU called Environmental Toxicology, because after every lecture, I give a call to action. So really, but really, if you can't take the course, I mean, it's about $40 a month if you use a monthly payment and there's a, uh, everyone should take that course, but pick one, one day and decide I'm going to ban this from my life. Literally throw out all your plastic containers, pick another one a week later and pick another one. It's not as though we should throw up our hands and say, well, we, it's everywhere. We can do nothing about it. You do control, you expose yourself to, if you're pregnant. Um, don't store organic compounds in your house at all. No gasoline, no oil, no glues in the, in the garage, not even the garage. And don't pump your own gas. It's time for chivalry to come back and let, so let the guys pump the gas for the pregnant ladies. Come on. And the fact that these uh, compounds are known to be teratogenic, potentially carcinogenic, and all the rest means you need to clean up your act. You have to eat organic. Now, I can't afford it. I understand. But you don't have to eat 100% organic. And one of the key things that I learned in putting the course together for environmental toxicology is if you can't eat organic, you can soak your vegetables and fruit for 15 minutes in water with baking soda and scrub them after that and then rinse it and it removes 99% of all the pesticide types that might be there. This is huge, right? So uh, people that listen to your podcast can benefit and 
consume less. And then, you know, if you can't afford the grass-fed um, meat and you're feeling like I'm spending too much money on this, realize that your dollar is a vote. It's not just you consuming it. You're driving the industry towards organic and cleaner food. So you vote with your dollars when you purchase food. And if you can't do all organic, just find out what you can do that's organic and get the glyphosate out. If you don't eat, not all of us eat just vegetables, right? So we eat a lot of things. If you just choose one food group and say, okay, I'm not going to accept glyphosate on my plants. Okay, that's a great decision. Okay, so you mentioned endocrine disruptors. The high amounts of endocrine disruptors in our environment and in our, I'm guessing they're in food as well. Well, through Roundup, that's an endocrine disruptor. Would you um, say what they are? And then does this have anything to do with the kind of gender identity issues that people could be having at this point? So, yeah, it's really interesting because Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was just called out, I think, a couple of months ago uh, for saying that there's a concern over endocrine disrupted chemicals. And one of the scientists that actually was quoted by saying that he, he should not be talking about this has the scientific literature on endocrine disrupting chemicals showing demasculization uh, of right demasculization in animals of endocrine disrupting chemicals. So, I mean... I've written this. I published Popular Rationalism at Substack.com. There's an article there. I think it was picked up by the Defender, so people can find this. But endocrine disrupting chemicals are chemicals that um, actually impair our abilities to use our hormone system properly. I have a lecture on the hormone system that I keep free from my biology course that I teach, and I have a whole lecture on environmental disrupting chemicals in the environmental toxicology course that I teach. Um, they are literally everywhere. They're in plastics and they are on fruits. Um, and the argument just like, oh, don't worry about the quats because those are mice and mice are not humans. I'm sorry. You have a mammalian reproduction system. Mice, human re reproduction is not that different than humans. You have a mammalian immune system. Our immune system is not that different from mice. Okay. So the, the, um, the principle of uh, precaution, the precautionary principle, needs to kick in at some point for industries and so on. And schools are a big concern of mine. If you're a member of a school board, you have a duty to make sure. You, you are the ward of everybody else's kids all day long. Um, you, one person can do a lot. So um, if the food in your school contains underconstructing chemicals, you should know. Um, Zen Honeycutt actually did a study, uh, and her organization is, I think, I think it's Moms Across America. Um, but she actually uh, showed that the amount of pesticides, in, in glyphosate in particular, which is an endocrine disruptor, um, in kids' school lunches is just off the charts. And the parents don't know it. So obviously pack your own lunch, but we're really talking about entire societies and, you know, you need to be involved and talk to your school board and say, what is in my school lunch? I would like a toxicological survey of all the dishes that you serve my children. And if, if you won't pay for it, the parents are more than willing to pass, the, pass the, the cup around and raise money to have this done so that we know what we're feeding our children. The water in the school should be tested on a regular basis. Um, 
and there's a huge pulse of toxins at the beginning of every school year. So all the water needs to be run for a long time if the school's been dormant for all summer long. So, you know, when my kids were like four, I would say five, five and six years old, and they were in elementary school, Ben and Zach, I would drive them to school, park in the back, and then we'd walk by the buses. And there was a line of four or five buses and they were idling. And I had to walk through the diesel fumes and my sons had to walk through the diesel fumes. And I didn't want them walking through diesel fumes. So I found this group called Group Against Smog and Pollution in Pittsburgh. And I asked them if they would join me in writing some legislation to ban the practice of idling school buses in front of schools in Pennsylvania. This bill went through every person that had no resistance. It was the easiest bill probably ever passed anywhere. It was a no-brainer. Okay, Everybody knows diesel fumes are toxic. But it took a, one person to say, hey, I think I can do something about this. Um, and then the only negative consequence of that was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it gets cold sometimes in the winter in the school buses when they don't idle, their fuel lines freeze. And so for a couple of years, the kids had more school days on crystal clear days where they could go out and enjoy the snow because the buses would, wouldn't run in the morning. So they, they put electric heaters on the fuel lines and that seemed to fix the problem. But so one, you are a powerful, wonderful, amazing human being that can do by your own actions. You can envision a solution and convince people. The thing to do is don't go to the schools and ask the schools to do something. Go to your legislators and do something about it. The school board is not responsible for the rules that they follow. And that sounds wrong, but you're not going to get anywhere with them on this issue unless they're all like-minded with you. You know, there's a there's a school in Oregon in my travels, Stacy Black and and her husband out there, part of the parent population. And the parents took over the lunch production. It was they were so anti corporate toxin. They took over the lunch production. They kicked out the company that makes the school foods in Pennsylvania. It's the same food that they feed prisoners in prison. So what's going on there? But and they said, You Dr. Jack, you have to come come to lunch. <laughs> tomorrow. I went to lunch. And I didn't know what to expect. I thought, there's no way these kids are eating all these vegetables. But the parents would show up in the morning. They would rotate the shifts by which day parents work, so they shared the load. And the kids would take their lunch tray and go to the first station, and they would take mounds of greens. Mounds of greens. All the kids. I'm like looking at 60 kids taking mounds of greens. I can't, you know, couldn't get my kids to eat a freaking you know, pea. So anyway, uh, so then they would go to the fruit and they would get some fruit and then they would you know and i'm looking at these kids are walking around with a huge like back 40 on their plates and uh they would sit down and scarf it down that program needs to be studied for health outcomes it needs to be replicated and we need to ask the question why why do we feed our kids foods of convenience when there's healthy abun abundant healthy food around probably for cost savings and it's for time saving too. It, you have to put in the energy to cook really, really good food. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time. Yep. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about COVID. So what was your response to COVID? And do you see us kind of falling into the same slippery slope as we did now as we did four years ago? Yeah. So my first response to COVID, I, I was in the airport in Seattle. I was on a speaking tour and uh, I went back to the Starbucks to get a coffee and I uh, came through a crowd. And in that crowd, there were about 
half a dozen or, or more men from China. They were all six foot or taller, which was unusual. They all were all the same age, 50 to 60 years old, and they were all masking. Uh, one of them was crumpled on the floor, crying his eyeballs out. And so I went back to the gate and I said to Grace, I said, something's going on in China with a virus. Got on the plane. I looked at, this was in January of 2020. I looked up China virus, something. I found Wuhan. I found the story, the, the initial reports. I went home and immediately got as sick as a dog. I've never been sicker. It was pneumonia of some type. I was sick for like three weeks. Well, during those three weeks, the Chinese published the genome sequence and I analyzed it. I downloaded it and I analyzed it. And I found all the pathogenic parts of the proteins that I knew that they might put into a vaccine because I knew they were going to go for a vaccine. And I published a peer-reviewed paper on pathogenic priming, warning that these parts of these proteins will cause problems with human health. A third of the pathogenic epitopes on those proteins that actually could make their way into a vaccine. I didn't know what they were going to do with an mRNA and only do spike, but a third of them target the human immune system. So this virus is a serious thing to, a serious contender to cause immune suppression. Anyway, I got better and published that paper and those results were validated by the lab in Harvard where they took my results, extended them added more proteins, especially from the mitochondria, and they found that, yes, these epitopes will induce autoimmune, autoimmune reactions through B cells. Okay, great. So now we have laboratory verification of pathogenic priming. The point is you don't want to be exposed to SARS-CoV-2 proteins uh, in multiple ways without immunity. And we know that the vaccine does not confer immunity. It doesn't stop transmission, and you need boosters. If you had a serious case of COVID, and survived, you probably have a very, very good, broad, and deep immunity. Um, but my reaction was to say, okay, great, let's model how bad this thing could be, because the, the characteristics of the transmission dynamics were pretty serious. So I sat there with an Excel spreadsheet in my podcast, and I modeled what happens if we just let it go. Okay, what happens if we have a add social distancing? Okay, then... Well, this happens. What happens if we add a treatment that's 60% effective? Okay, what happens if we add a vaccine that's 60% effective? And what I found in the model, and it's not real-world data, but I found that, and this is people are going to spark at this, right? But if you added at that time before it escaped and went broad, a 30-day intense social distancing. I mean, like police state lockdown, everybody's at home. And then you added the treatments and the vaccines. If they were ready after those 30 days, there's no way that this could happen because there's no vaccine ready in 30 days. That's the other thing people forget. When, when, when they, they try to justify the lockdown, the lockdown only makes sense then if you have something following it that makes sense. And we didn't have anything that makes sense. The whole part of the lockdown was to protect the hospital so they had time to figure out what they're going to do with this thing. Um, which I think is particularly cowardly since we spent billions on giving them readiness exercises already after Ebola. But in the model that I had, it went up like this and it went down and it, it was a constant buzz. So we knew, I knew it was going to be endemic, right? I'm not advocating for lockdowns, by the way. I'm not advocating for lockdowns, even if a vaccine is ready. Um, so here's the thing. We were never going to get away from this thing. So the, the CDC shipped out a faulty PCR test 
They tested the Princess Cruise Line people, and people that were let go because they tested negative, some of them were positive because of the false negative, and some of them that were let go, uh, some of them were diagnosed with COVID that didn't have COVID, there was a false positive risk too. And so I started podcasting about this heavy, I started warning about the flaws of the PCR, not the CDC's PCR, but all the commercial kits PCR were high risk of false positives. I've published papers in my journal, Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law on this. There is over-reporting of cases. Everybody knows now, thank goodness, that the cycle threshold above 25 doesn't really mean anything. But they won't release the cycle thresholds that were used because they're so-called proprietary. That gives them public health a dial where they can dial up the numbers and dial down the numbers based on the cycle threshold. And there's one case where, you know, they're in the form where the CDC was collecting. Here's, here's where you go to find out which sequences you should submit so we can find new variants. They said if the person's vaccinated, that the cycle threshold has to be um, um, 35 or greater. No, uh, sorry, 26 or lower, like 26 or lower. But if they're unvaccinated, we'll take any of them. So why is that? What does that tell you right there? What they were trying to do is they were trying to discover variants that they could attribute to, look, these people who are not vaccinating, they're the source of new variants. They were trying to bias the data. Well, I caught them. I got loud about it. I made a lot of noise about it. So now if you go to the CDC's website for that specific notice, you get a P the PDF that they had there was replaced by somebody who used the exact same long arbitrary random numbers to label the PDF. And it says, Oh, for that information you're looking at, go here. You click on it, it goes to some arbitrary page in CDC that tells you how to package samples to send to CDC. Cover up. Busted. Got them. So, you know, the, the fact that we can't trust CDC and public health when it comes to the next time, it means that we're going to have to pull together as a community under new leadership of some kind, of some sensibility. I don't particularly care to be that person. Uh, there are people that I do trust. It would be nice to have a panel of experts and host an event with a panel of experts if disease X comes and say, okay, what do we all know about it collectively? What are our current recommendations? Understand that every recommendation that we advise on might change. Um, and just turn off the TV. We're not interested in what the CDC has to say. They're owned by pharma. They profit from vaccines. We know what they're going to do. It's not as though when they run these simulations, other people weren't watching. They're going to say, there's no treatment for this, and anybody who says that there's a treatment is guilty of malpractice and we need their medical license, wait around and do nothing till the vaccine is ready. That's what they're going to say. Yeah. Uh, so well, I think it's going to come, I, I think a disease scenario is going to be played out again. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, in their uh, best wild dreams, I would kill a lot of children, which is really sick. Right, the, the yep. mental... that's what they've. A lot of people have been talking about. The next thing is going to target children. Yeah, so the, the degree of mental stability and I don't know what, what to call it. We're going to need a backbone of steel to be able yep. to continue to souse out the truth on this if kids are allegedly dying, and. If they absolutely start killing children on ventilators the way that they killed adults on ventilators, yeah, then there's going to be another reaction of uh, of a type I, I hope nobody ever has to see. Do you think it's coming this year? 
That's a great question. I have no idea. I think that they will want to wait long enough until people kind of fall back into their sheepdom, but I don't think it's going to happen. They they really really kind of you know kick the elephant sleeping elephant in in the trunk. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It really. I I met um, Jack. Everybody, I met um, Dr. Lyons Weiler at a health freedom conference a couple of weeks ago, and we had some very interesting conversations then. And we're just continuing it now, but we're sharing it with you. So let me ask my final question: If there's one thing that the American citizen can do to make themselves healthier, what would it be? That's a great question. Um, again, I don't give medical advice. Right. I never give medical advice. So check with your doctor on anything that you heard from me ever, any setting, anywhere. Um, get off the couch. We need more exercise. We need to move. Right. That's the one thing we need to do. We, you all know it. You all know it. You need to move. I need to move. Okay. Uh, it's really, really good for people with Alzheimer's to take walks. It's really good for the brain for them. Something about coordinating the body's movement, navigating in three-dimensional space really helps because people with, uh, with uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So educate yourself. You said one thing, but two things. Educate yourself. Come over to ipac-edu.org and uh, see if we can't set some things on fire in your head. You all have a lot of material over there. I've been combing through your websites. So Thank you, Jack. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. I'd love to have you back at another time. There's always so much to talk about. Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege. And uh, go Feds for Freedom. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And of course, share this episode. Visit our website at fedsforfreedom.org. I'll see you next time.